a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I get to catch up with my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos every week. This is kind of like visiting a little island of sanity in a sea of irrationality. And Eric, I know you feel the same way. How did you put it? The uh, the never-ending insanity that we wake up to every morning? <laughs> yeah, the serial insanity. You know, we've gotten so inured to, to it, I think, over the past nearly three years that it's often hard to just remember a time when you would get up in the morning and go, oh, what a beautiful day. The sun's shining, the birds are chirping, and go about your usual routine without having to worry about somebody dropping an anvil on your head. Right, right. And I, one of the more difficult things, I, I enjoy work. I enjoy my work in that I get to talk with you each week, and the difficult thing for me is there's so much insanity on any given weekly get-together that I'm just like, what do we pick to choose? What, what do we talk about today? Um, yeah, it's literally a target-rich environment. We could begin with, uh, you know, how comforting it is to know that Republicans are protecting our Second Amendment rights. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, let's let's talk about this. <laughs> I think uh, the Uvalde shootings uh, happened since the last time that we talked, and um, there, there's so much that, that can be covered there. Um, I, I'm still reeling from, from some of the things that have come out about how police were actively holding parents back and standing outside the classroom, even as the killer was very much alive and at work, you know, in the classroom. And and it's been a long time, you know, for that information to come forward. Everybody had to get their story straight, but it, it sure sounds like there was there was some serious failure on the part of somebody in that decision-making process. Well, you use just the right word, fail. And isn't that emblematic of everything that the government gets its hands on? You know, the very people who allegedly are supposed to keep us safe, and, uh, you know, for that reason, we're just supposed to turn in our guns because, oh, they'll take care of us. Uh, once again, prove that they're incapable or unwilling to, to actually keep anybody safe except, of course, themselves. And that was the hardest part. I, I saw the video of the parents, you know, pleading with them and screaming, please go get them, go get our kids. And, you mm-hmm. know, parents being manhandled and. Um, and and it was it was it was heartbreaking, but all the more so when you learned that at the time those parents were doing that, the the killer was still very much engaged in his activity of killing. Yeah, one eighteen-year-old kid uh, with a couple of rifles and, and, and ammo against a whole horde of body-armored, uh, Batman-suited uh, uh, cops uh, who were too timorous to go in and deal with it. Yeah, something there sure doesn't pass the sniff test. And I'm thinking back to, you know, just a couple of years ago uh, when they were shutting down all the businesses all across the country. And there was a bar there in Texas that said, well, screw this. We're going to be open for our patrons and we're going to go ahead and serve beer. And they actually had some volunteer people out there open carrying. And lo and behold, here came the SWAT team rolling in on them like, you know, (laughs) you know, the, the cavalry riding to the rescue. Um, you know, they're very eager to go after them, but uh, not so much to go somewhere, you know, where they were really needed. Yeah, there's so many appalling incongruities here. And, you know, one of them with regard to this particular incident is uh, the fallout of this obsession with officer safety. You hear that all the time as the excuse for the over the top way that they manhandle people who pose no threat to them, you know, uh, make them get on the ground, uh, screaming at them, pointing guns at them, and sometimes shooting guns. Uh, and I think it's because their paranoia has been amped up to 
a, a level 10 or 11, level 11 on a scale of 1 to 10, such that they're constantly, obsessively afraid for their safety, and yet at the same time, uh, we're constantly lectured about how we must consider these people to be heroes, heroes who are uh, you know, most concerned with their safety. I, you know, is there anything wrong with the logic of that? Not at all. You know, interestingly enough, the people who have most most strongly questioned uh, what was done there in Uvalde, at least to me, are, are friends I have who either are former cops or current police officers mm-hmm. and, and have just said that is so inconsistent with our training. They say our training was as long as there is gunfire, our job is to sprint to where it's taking place and, and mm-hmm. to do whatever it takes to stop the person. And if he gets me, fine. It's going to slow him down long enough for the guy behind me to hopefully get him. Well, sure, and that's how it ought to be. And if they did do those types of things, uh, rather than scream at people who have gone 56 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour zone at gunpoint and order them to get on the ground and manacle them and manhandle them, perhaps they might actually be accorded the respect they seem to so desperately crave. Yep. It'll be interesting to see if this um, if this results in some real accountability. It sounds right now like the um, police chief is the one who has they've agreed to throw under the bus but it just mm-hmm. it just seems like there were there were multiple levels of failure. And, you know, I, I'm not one to sing the praises of, of the federal government and all of its armed bureaucracies, but um, kudos to the Border Patrol agents who showed up off duty and saw the situation for what it was, took charge and went in there and finished the job. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's another aspect of this that I find interesting uh, in that schools, government schools continue uh, increasingly look like prisons. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the kids are herded in there, the doors are locked, there are armed guards within, they uh, have orders barked at them, their, their day is highly structured, and so on and so on. And yet, uh, one of the least safe places to be is a prison, an actual prison. How many times do we have to see or read about prisoners getting shanked, uh, uh, getting raped, all of these other things, notwithstanding that they're in a prison filled with you know guards? Yep. And and now, is it surprising that the same sort of thing is happening in these uh, these prisons for kids that are styled government schools? Now, and and you raise a very interesting question, which is for parents who say, "Well, how can I keep my kids safe?" I really think that anybody who who seriously is asking that question has to consider the possibility maybe the safest place is to take your kid somewhere outside of that institution. Sure, ideally home. You know, where your home is a whole lot safer, isn't it? Uh, not not just physically, but emotionally and otherwise for your kid. You know, you then have uh, some degree, of, you have all control over the sorts of things that your kid is taught. If your kid is upset, you're the parent. You actually have uh, skin in the game. You're concerned about figuring out what's the matter with your kid uh, and not just giving him drugs or shunting him off to a timeout somewhere. Uh, and, you know, the chances of anything happening physically to your kid within your home are essentially nil. And it's so ironic to me that the pushers of government schools uh, use the, this, this assertion that, well, you know, if, if the kids aren't in government schools, of course, they call them public schools, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, the parents, you know, we, we don't know if the kids are being abused at home, if they're being, you know, not fed properly, if, if uh, you know, if they're being screamed at. It's absolutely ironic. It's this, this, this just stereotypical projection of psychopathic people, of the things that they do onto people who didn't do it. In my opinion, the greatest fear that uh, people with that mindset have is that these youngsters might be learning inappropriate ideas like responsibility, freedom, natural rights, <laughs> limited government, right. and things like that. And most foundationally, to learn how to think. I, you know, there are many beefs 
that can be directed at government schools. But I think probably one of the chief beefs is that it does not, they do not uh, teach kids to think. The trivium that I wrote about uh, a week ago, logic, rhetoric, and so on, uh, which are the foundational basis for, you know, learning to grapple with the world and deal with things and understand how things work. Instead, it's all about obedience, reflexive, rote memorization of things uh, to teach to teach the kids to become docile, obedient workers who simply defer to authority and wait to be told what to do. So I have to ask you, in your opinion, is this going to uh, bring about that push for gun control? I know the opportunists have been foaming at the mouth. What's the likelihood of them seeing success now? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how you define success. I think they're determined to try. Uh, you know, I think it will come down to whether there's pushback, uh, whether we'll accept it, you know, by and large, ultimately, is, uh, I think, going to determine what the answer to that question is. And I hope, I hope that Americans, uh, enough Americans, aren't going to just meekly, you know, roll over and say, okay, I guess I have to turn in my gun for the sake of safety. You know, that's disastrous. I think probably the main reason the United States, though, though we had to endure a, a lot of abuse and a lot of tyranny over this uh, so-called pandemic. Right. Uh, it wasn't nearly as extreme as what happened in places like hmm, Canada and Australia, where guess what? It's much harder to own a gun, and and more people in those countries do not have them. Hmm. You think that might embolden these tyrants to really push people around even more? Hmm. I wonder what the answer to that question is. Well, I think you're right. I think the last two years were an excellent uh, example of look. You will be abused if your abusers think they can get away with it. And, and not just, you know, the yeah. COVID response, but look at the, uh, you know, the BLM riots and so forth. Um, the, the police were in many cases told to stand down or hold off and stay back as these looters right. went nuts. People learned they have That's to right. defend themselves or they're going to go undefended. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a teaser point here, and I'm sure you'll remember it. But recall the, uh, the riots in L.A. after the Rodney King thing back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And you remember those Korean store owners who took it upon themselves to defend their stores. You know, they, they, they mounted the parapet, so to speak. They were up there on their roofs with their own rifles because the cops had just abandoned the place to the looters and the rioters. And we're going to you know, let them just destroy the, 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 you know, the investments that these people had made in their businesses. And, and those Koreans said, you know what, that's not acceptable. We're not going to permit that to happen. And they were able to prevent it from happening precisely because they had the means to defend their stores. And that's a really important point for people to understand. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with being a rooftop Korean. Hold that thought. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back and talk with Eric Peters right after these messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. I've got a link in the show notes. We'll take you right to his website. Eric, let's talk about some automotive stuff. Since I've got you on the line mm-hmm. here, um, did I hear correctly? The DeLorean is making a comeback. Can that be true? Well, it depends on how you define making a comeback. Uh, <laughs> they are going to bring back a car uh, named DeLorean. Um, but it's not the DeLorean that you remember from Back to the Future. Uh, this, of course, is uh, another case of the abuse of an iconic name by applying it to something that is profoundly different from what the original was. Uh, it's going to be, drum roll, are you surprised? Another electric car. Oh, boy. Uh, which, will have, which will have 
uh, the gull wings that, uh, you know, that defined uh, the, the DeLorean in the minds of many people. But it won't have Mr. Fusion. And, you know, that's, I think, the key point here. Uh, the DeLorean was cool for a variety of reasons uh, in the movie. But one was that you could put old banana peels and uh, whatnot into Mr. Fusion to power the thing. Uh, unfortunately, the new DeLorean is not going to have Mr. Fusion because Mr. Fusion doesn't exist. It is going to be just like every other electric car and hobbled by all of the other functional and practical problems that this set every single electric car. But they're trying to hype it and, once again, mislead people and get them all jazzed up by thinking, oh, look how neat it is. It has going doors. It looks, it looks a lot like the DeLorean from the movies. You know, so as to get them to not think about all of the practical and other problems, and God knows what this thing's going to cost. I'm, I'm expecting the thing probably is going to cost close to six figures and maybe even more than that. Man, oh man. I I look at electric cars, and I, I see a lot of them on the roads these days, and and on the one hand, I understand the attraction. People think, oh, it's, it's good for the environment, and it's quiet, and it's zippy and fast. But the downsides, especially in a time where there is, is true energy crisis, is that very few people seem to understand that uh, those cars are not something that generates energy. They just simply, they, they can store energy briefly, you know, and use it to power it. Mm-hmm. But uh, that energy has to come from somewhere. And right now the energy sources sure. that generate that electricity seem to be dwindling. Or at least access well, to them. Point. Yeah, they, they are dwindling. And it's interesting that they are consolidating or they want to consolidate all forms of energy into electric energy for which there simply isn't sufficient capacity. And, you know, that begs a question in my mind. Uh, well, hmm, if there isn't enough energy to power all these electric cars plus power everything else that's powered by electricity, what will happen? What do you think is going to happen? Ah, you think there might be rationing? You think there might be supply issues? You think there might be price increases when there's significantly less of what everybody needs, uh, but it's not available? What do you suppose is going to happen? And they know that. So, you know, then that begs the question, if they know that, what are they intending? And I think what they're intending, again, uh, is to further ensurf us, you know, to further make life expensive, difficult, to decrease our mobility when it comes to things like vehicles. Uh, to make it more expensive to own a car, to make it more expensive to operate a car, and on and on and on. And, and you know, I've arrived at this at these conclusions because after a long time, because I'd like to give people the benefit of the doubt until proved otherwise, I've come to believe that these people are not well-intended but misguided. You know, you know, I believe that they are like Fauci and like a lot of these other people in that they are really uh, malicious and sinister people who are attempting to push something onto us using our presumption that most people are, in fact, well-intended and trying to do the right thing, and they're not. Yeah, and something you have pointed out, too, and that is the increasing amount of remote access and control over our vehicles that uh, technology is providing. Uh, For instance, you know, a a person who buys a Tesla, you've got an amazing-looking car, and it's got some really cool gadgets, Mm -hmm. but if it's not connected, it's very possible that you can't even use your car. Sure, and it's not just cars. You know, before this whole electric car fandango really got rolling, they were rolling out smart meters. Remember that? Uh, You know, putting these devices on your house so that they can in real time and remotely, without having a guy come out to your house, uh, meter or limit, actually, uh, the amount of electricity that you're allowed to use. You know, and, and again, that's not a coincidence. These are all pieces of the same puzzle. And as they begin to come together, you begin to see the picture that the puzzle portrays. Well, 
it's it, it's again a great argument for being more self-reliant as, as much as possible to stand on your own feet I don't think there's any way that we're going to effectively avoid some of the pain that is coming our way and I'm speaking primarily economically yeah. I think there are some adjustments coming that everybody is going to feel um, maybe the the da- the Davos crowd isn't going to feel it as much as the rest of us but um, we're all going to have to make adjustments and, and the key is going to be get on that train early as far as uh, providing for more of your own needs and don't be the one who's standing in line praying there's something left when you finally get through the store doors. Yeah, certainly. When you're on a ship and you feel the ship hit the iceberg, uh, it might be a good idea to start to think about, uh, well, this ship might not be here in a couple of hours from now. Maybe it's time to start thinking about an exit strategy. Absolutely. But, but again, um, we've been trained to think that anybody who thinks in those terms is some kind of radical or is intent on harming other people. I don't know why that's such an alien state of mind, considering, you know, that's that's how our grandparents and those who came before them, um, they they operated on that basis, you know, on a daily basis. They wanted to be self-sufficient. They wanted to be able to take care of themselves. It was a shame to be dependent upon other people. Sure, it was. And of course, they had to deal with hardships that most Americans have absolutely no personal familiarity with. And I think that brought home the point to them. Uh, they understood that life can be hard, and so therefore it could be hard again, and therefore it makes sense to keep that in mind and to potentially prepare for it. Americans, by and large, have, have had the indulgence of, of living in a prosperous, relatively safe, peaceful uh, country for generations now, you know, occasional aberrations, but by and large, it was, it was exactly that. And they foolishly, naively take that as the given order of things and that it's never going to change. And I think that's a big mistake. So let me ask you, are there any other trends or issues on the horizon that uh, you feel are especially worth our attention? I know there's a lot competing for our attention, but what do you see as being some of the most important things on which we could be focusing? Well, right now, I think it's uh, whatever you're going to call it, whether it's ape fever, monkeypox, whatever. Uh, I don't think weaponized hypochondria has been put to bed just yet. I think it's going to be making a comeback soon. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think about a lot, and, and I'm just uh, freestyling here, I don't necessarily have any support for this, but I, I am concerned that they're going to use some next-gen kind of excuse about a virus or a pox or whatever they're going to call it to suppress information about the physical harm that's been done by these vaccines. You look into it and see how many people have reported injuries, uh, some of them permanent, including the, you know, the deaths of so many people so far. And in order to cover that up, they might use, oh, there's a virus going around and use that to, uh, to shift the blame for these problems onto it so that they don't get held accountable for what they've already done to so many millions of people. Uh, you're familiar with the Great Barrington Declaration, correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, I don't know if you were aware of this. I just saw this uh, yesterday. The the same folks, the Brownstone Institute uh, and, and some of the people who helped put together the Great Barrington Declaration are now working on a project called the uh, the Great Inquiry or something along that, that lines, which mm-hmm. is seeking to bring some accountability and responsibility to the folks who pushed the COVID response on us in the first place. Very yeah. excited to see that. Me too, and it's uh, it's something that is essential that has to happen. What's going on now is absolutely unconscionable. Even if you just go by what's been reported to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events uh, System, and even if you cut that down uh, by 75%, the damage that has been done by these vaccines is horrific and appalling. And if if that kind if the numbers involved there 
uh, had been associated with, say, a car, you know, if that many reports about uh, a possible design defect that could kill you had been reported to NHTSA about a car, you bet your bippy that car would be off the market. And if not off the market, there would be immense pressure to take it off the market. And certainly nobody would be forced to buy the thing and drive it. You know, and that's, a, I think, a really, a really important take-home point with regard to these vaccines, as they're, I put them in air fingers close all the time because they're not, uh, and what it says about the, the people and the entities that are continuing to push this, including lately, into the arms of toddlers, five-year-olds they want to force to get these things. Wow. Well, that's the essence of statism, right? Ideas so good, mm-hmm. they have to be mandatory. Eric, yep. thanks so much for visiting with us. Always a breath of fresh oh. air to get your take on the passing scene. Likewise, Brian. Thank you for having me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. You can visit their website at DixieChiro.com. And let's just put it bluntly, if you are dealing with pain, whether that pain is from an automobile accident or a bulging herniated disc, or maybe it's uh, from, oh, I don't know, neuropathy. First of all, those are all very legitimate reasons to be feeling pain, but I'm here to tell you Dixie Chiropractic is there to help you. They have some great intro specials that I think you will find worth your while. Go to their website, DixieChiro.com, and Dr. Ward Wagner and his staff will take care of you from there. Here's a $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage. This is for people with bulging, herniated discs. For neuropathy, you might want to check out the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, DixieChiro.com is the website. And, of course, Dr. Ward Wagner and the folks at Dixie Chiropractic are ready. They're, to, they're, they're there and ready to help you. But please mention that you heard this on this program. All right. Having said that, got a question for you about uh, the individuals who inflicted the most harm on the world over these past two years. You want me to name some names? Okay. Dr. Fauci would probably be a very likely candidate for this. There are others at various levels, state, federal, sometimes even local. But the question I have is, will these individuals succeed in avoiding any accountability for their actions? I I see this as a very serious threat in the sense that they know, they they have a proven system, that if we just invoke, well, it's a public health emergency, and, you know, there's there's a germ out there, there's some kind of disease, and we want to protect you from it, they pretty much have carte blanche to, to just shut everything down. Go back to the whole thing. You're essential. You're not. Wear this. Stand there. Get this shot or lose your job. I mean, look, it was one thing just to disagree with some of the solutions that were foisted on us. Solutions, it turns out, really did nothing to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. You look at the places that had very strict lockdown and masking mandates versus those that didn't. And the virus still spread pretty much the same through both of those different locations. It's like viruses don't really care what, you know, the public policy people are doing. Which makes sense. I mean, this is how, this is how pandemics were addressed for decades, for generations. 
It was just understood that you you minimize the risks to yourself. You protect the vulnerable. In this case, that would be people over the age of 70 who have, you know, one or more comorbidities. Do your best to, mit- to mitigate their exposure to the virus. But everybody else can pretty much live their life according to how much risk they're willing to assume. Understanding that the virus will make its way through the population and it will get weaker as it goes just as we saw, remember the Omicron variant variant was supposed to turn everything on its ear? Oh, it's very contagious. Yes, but most people who got it ended up, you know, having the equivalent of a bad cold. And, of course, all the, the mRNA vaccines that were given, you know, we, we're still trying to determine, did it do more harm than good? Did it actually, it certainly didn't do the job of preventing people from catching COVID or preventing them from spreading COVID. I mean, I'm not trying to be vindictive when I say this because I know a lot of people ended up getting the shot either out of concern. Well, I'm just trying to be, uh, you know, abundantly cautious or maybe they actually had their job on the line. But it sure didn't stop them from getting the virus. Governor Gavin Newsom, by the way, the latest example in California. Well, I've, I've got uh, I tested positive, positive for uh, COVID, he said here just a few days ago. But thankfully, I'm fully vaccinated and the symptoms are mild and I'm following health you know, protocols to work from home. And Dude, if, if the jab was supposed to protect you, you think you could uh, maybe say, hey, I never got it. So I'm sorry to say on such a skeptical note, but I, I'm very concerned. These folks did an awful lot of harm. And now they want to pretend like, well, nobody forced you to get that thing. Oh, yes, you did. Dr. Fauci is one of the worst among them. Well, I'm happy to report to Jordan Schachtel at his dossier substack says holding the bad guys accountable in investigating the villains of COVID mania. He says one of the most frequent questions I get from dossier readers involves the lack of accountability during the COVID era. And so he asks, how could people responsible for so much harm just move on and get away with all of it without even facing a slap on the wrist? How could the likes of the CDC, the FDA, Fauci and company destroy millions of lives and face no repercussions? How did Pfizer and Moderna executives rob the American people blind and face no recourse? How were all kinds of public health experts on the federal, state and local level able to abuse our unalienable rights without facing any consequences for their actions? Well, he says, I want to fill you in on what I was up to this weekend. He says, I participated in a fascinating working group that was brought together, by, brought together by Jeffrey Tucker's Brownstone Institute. Joined by what I consider to be some of the brightest minds in economics, science, medicine, and journalism, we drafted the foundations of a document that will hopefully be used as a means to hold the villains of the COVID era accountable for their authoritarian madness. Now, if you're a reader of the dossier, he says you've definitely seen these individuals on your television and you've read their seminal articles. They come from all walks of life. And he says, it was an absolute honor to spend the weekend among them. I will let them discuss their involvement in the project if they so choose, and I'm sure they will. The major participants will likely start discussing this matter in the coming weeks. Now, he says, we're calling this document the Articles of Inquiry. And it remains in its very early stages. This paper will serve a much different purpose than the influential Great Barrington Declaration. Brownstone's working group intends on documenting the true history of this era while allowing the paper to serve as a springboard for federal investigations and other avenues of exploration. Now, the goal, of course, is to hold these actors accountable for the disaster that was COVID mania. The American ruling class committed over two years and counting worth of the worst government-directed human rights atrocities of the 21st century. 
and they shouldn't get a free pass for the tyranny they imposed both upon America and the world. So he says, expect more on this topic to be revealed in the coming days or in the coming weeks and months. Now, I know there are those who are skeptical, right? You're looking, well, what about those who perpetrated the Iraq war or the global financial crisis? When are they going to be charged and imprisoned? And that's a legitimate question. And there are people who I think should be held accountable for crying out loud. Former President George W. Bush mistakenly told the truth the other day about a brutal, unnecessary invasion of Iraq. I mean, uh, Ukraine. Whoops. Then he blamed it on his age. I mean, on the one hand, okay, he told the truth for a change, but the bottom line is there's an awful lot of people, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people who were harmed. And I don't mean, well, they suffered an inconvenience. I mean, like, displaced, maimed, killed because of his actions and other world leaders. I know I, I don't want to sound cynical here, but when you look at the uh, upper uh, the upper echelons of power, you look at the power centers, both nationally as well as globally, it's pretty tough to find anybody that, that you could rightly say, that's a good person right there. That is an upright individual. You know why? Because they weed out the people who are upright, the people who actually have values, the people who have consciences. They're very quickly weeded out and shown the door. Oh, yeah, there's some kind of fringe nut. Yeah, they're all always going on about right and wrong and inalienable rights and, you know, accountability before God or something like that. When we all know that what really matters is nothing less than power. Well, I don't know if this is going to produce fruit or not. But I applaud it as a worthy effort. And when I look and I see the groups that are involved, particularly the Brownstone Institute... I was very early on to catch on to the Great Barrington Declaration. A part of this is because a lot of these uh, information sources like Jeffrey Tucker and others who were a part of that, I have followed them for years. They already had earned my trust by showing themselves to be people who were substantive in their thinking, willing to question, willing to, to add to their knowledge. They didn't approach it from the standpoint of, we have all the answers. But I thought the Great Barrington Declaration, which, of course, was immediately targeted for, in the words of Dr. Fauci, a decisive takedown. In other words, we have to discredit these doctors, these, these scientists who had actually put their names to that document. We've got to take it down and make sure that nobody trusts them. Why would they do that? Especially because most of the things that were acknowledged as problematic and then recognized as possible solutions have now been embraced. Oh, well, of course, yes, we were always for, you know, protecting the uh, most vulnerable and uh, pretty much just letting everybody else learn to live with uh, COVID. Why, that's, that's what we said all along. But that's gaslighting. And it's the worst kind of gaslighting because it's being done by people who were our abusers. I'm sorry if that sounds dramatic. I'm not trying to sit here and wallow in victimhood. But to put it bluntly, I'm still righteously pissed off that these people did what they did. And that they believe that somehow, well, if we just say like Dr. Fauci, we may never know if, you know, the the lockdowns worked. I think it's pretty safe to say we know what worked and we know what didn't. Now the question is, will the people who pushed fraud and pushed dangerous things on us that, that people didn't want, including mandatory you know, vaccinations, are they going to be held accountable? And when I say held accountable, I'm talking like actually sit in a criminal trial and answer questions in front of a jury. Nuremberg style. 
I know it may sound harsh, but unless you want to make that the new normal and allow them to get a pass on it, that's exactly what needs to happen, and it needs to happen sooner than later. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'm grateful for every one of the sponsors who makes this program possible. I especially want to give a shout-out and show my appreciation for SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, this is an actual brick-and-mortar business located in St. George, Utah. So if you are anywhere in southern Utah and you or someone you know is uh, interested in sewing or perhaps pursues, you know, the 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 sewing, I was going to say hobby, but it's it's even more than a hobby. It's It's almost an obsession. And some of the things that people can create through quilting, through embroidery, through their sewing skills, it's nothing short of remarkable. You don't believe me? Pay close attention to the county fair this year. Wherever you are, go to your county fair. Look at some of the exhibits that people have entered and, and especially some of the homemade projects. It'll blow your mind, the creativity and the utility that people can, can come up with with these amazing modern sewing machines. Sewing and Quilting Center is there to help you from the entry-level machines for under $200 up to the, you know, $14,000, $15,000 long-arm quilting machines. They've got all the supplies you need to make them work. Here's the best part. They will teach you how to use your machine. They'll train you how to use it. I mean, you can't go wrong. That's money well spent. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. Please reach out to them. Not only tell them to, that you heard this message, but to do some business with them. All right, I took, I took a pretty strident tone in that last segment. It felt good to get it off my chest, but I want to dwell on something a little bit, uh, a little bit more lofty. Let's, let's look to a little higher, a little brighter source for this segment. And I'm going to start with the question that could part of the dysfunction that our society is seeing be the result of too many people viewing the world through a dark lens? Now, do you understand what I mean when I say we, we look at the world through a dark lens? We, we tend to see news sources that, that often highlight the very worst that humanity does. I mean, when's the last time you saw a, a national newscast lead out, breaking news today, you know, a person did something kind <laughs> or something. Everything went right. A family traveling on vacation safely returned home to find their neighbors had cared for their yard. I mean, that's not news, right? News is pretty much when things go wrong. But Paul Rosenberg, in his own unique way, points to one of the problems that we have developed as a civilization, and he's talking Western civilization, is we have forgotten how to love. Here's how he puts it. He says, once upon a time, most Westerners learned how to love by sitting in church and listening to stories from an exposition upon the Bible. Regardless of the sometimes mixed messages, this had had its effects, and people did learn how to love. But he says, this way of life however, is mostly gone. And in its wake, he says, most Westerners have learned to see the world through dark lenses. So a thousand decent and peaceful people may cross our field of view every day, but we don't see them. We see rather the threatening, the corrupt, and those who act stupidly. And he says, this is something we need to get past. The opposite model is one that a friend of his expressed like this. Seriously speaking, with age comes a deeper view of beautiful, Wherever I go, I notice on every street many beautiful people all the time. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, that's the right way to live, both for one's own sake and for the benefit of others. This is how your inner life breaks out of the world's dark shell 
and begins to function. If we wish to be healthy and enjoy fulfilling lives, it's crucial for us to be like my friend, to notice beauty when it appears, to focus on it, to grasp for its essence. So here's a simple exercise to help us start to recognize the beautiful things around us. Paul Rosenberg says, cultivating love is easy. And he says, I have a very simple exercise that anyone can do. It's an exercise that will cultivate love in you. Here it is. He says, go to a train station or any other place with lots of people coming and going. Find a comfortable spot and watch people. Now, what he means is see them as individuals. Focus on them one at a time. Try to sense their desires and their motives. Let yourself, oper- let yourself operate instinctively rather than methodically. Yeah, in other words, don't classify them. Okay, this one's overweight, and that one has a mustache, and that one I can't tell if it's a man or a woman. No, just look at them as individuals. But he says, then think about how these people could have been, save for accidents of birth, people that you would have loved. So, for instance, look at a young man. He could have been your brother in another life, or your father, or a friend. Run this exercise on person after person. Look at them. Try to sense their essence, empathize with them. In other circumstances, they might have been your beloved aunt or uncle, your child, your husband, or your wife. In short, he's saying to see these people, to look as deeply as you can into them, even if you can't be sure. And this is the key, then find ways to love them. By doing this, you are drawing upon your inner life. You are enriching it and developing it. Now, I'm going to pause for just a moment and just ask you, does that seem too lofty? Does that seem like, you know, something that only navel gazers would do or, you know, somebody who's, you know, sit running around with flowers in their hair? Because I think he's onto something here. And, and look, I'm the guiltiest of this. Oh, I hate, I hate how when I get on the road, I stop seeing people as people. And I tend to see other drivers as either distractions or impediments or competitors, which is, that's the worst of all. But it starts with seeing people as individuals. Looking at them and trying to remember they are much more like you than you think. And the point here Paul Rosenberg is trying to make is he says this exercise above is just all you need to build love into yourself. He says I'm hesitant to add anything to it because I don't want to distract your attention. But he says I will give you one supplemental piece of material. He says first please understand this is just a supplement. Reading can't replace doing the actual work. You have to do the exercise. But He says, you must do the exercise. But here's the classic passage on love and one which remains transcendent. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, try to read it slowly without without mixing religion into it. So this is quoting from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not vaunt itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself improperly, seeks not its own, is not provoked takes no account of evil, rejoices not in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
love never fails. If there be prophecies, they will be done away. If there be tongues, they will cease. If there be knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I felt as a child. I thought as a child. And now that I am become a man, I have put away childish things. For we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then will I know fully, even as I am known. Now abides faith, hope, love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Now, I know, I've rolled my eyes at times before when people have suggested, you know, Brian, love is the answer. But I don't think I've ever read that scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 quite the way that I read it when I hear it in the context of what Paul Rosenberg is is talking about, about the way that we see other people. And isn't it interesting, the part there where it talks about when uh, that which is uh, perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's another scripture in the New Testament that talks about how charity is the bond of perfectness. And that just, that jumps into my mind as it really is perfect. Now, I'm sorry, this turned into more of a Sunday school lesson than I intended to, but I think if more people understood the perfect love with which God loves us right now, however you are, however flawed, however good you are, whatever you may be struggling with, if you understood how perfect that love for you is, you would find it much easier to reflect that kind of understanding and compassion and a willingness to to strive with people around you. But it's hard to remember, right? We're wounded. Most of us, I think, are walking wounded in some way, shape, or form. We definitely notice the walking wounded around us. Sometimes it's more apparent than others. You know, it may take, you know, outrageous forms of dress or brightly colored hair, piercings here. I don't know. Sometimes it's people's behavior that shows, you know, that they're walking wounded. But I think Paul Rosenberg has a point that is well worth considering. If there is something that is missing in your world, maybe ask yourself the question, is it love? Is it my ability to see and love people for who they are without judgment and to just recognize that under different circumstances, that person I'm looking at walking down the aisle at Walmart could very much be a beloved person in my life. I think there's something very life-changing about that suggestion. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I just want to mention some of the great sponsors who make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, also HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic, which you can visit at DixieChiro.com. 
got a quote. I want to start out with a quote for this hour. And uh, this is hearkening back to one of my favorite philosophers of the 20th century, that being Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And I wonder if you can relate to what he says here. There is but one choice to rise to the task of the age. Very soon, only too soon, your country will stand in need of not just exceptional men, but of great men. Find them in your souls. Find them in your hearts. Find them in the depths of your country. I don't even know the context in which Solzhenitsyn uttered this quote, but I saw it and I thought, man, if that doesn't apply to our time, I don't know what would. And I say that as uh, by way of introduction, because I believe you are one of the people who is seeking to rise to the task of the age. You see what's happening around us. You recognize, oh boy, things are getting interesting. Things are getting, you know, wobbling out of control. There's something I should be doing, but you're not sure exactly what that is. And first of all, I say welcome to the club. There's a lot of us that have been grappling with that question for some time. But the thing that should give you hope is that not only does your country, in fact, stand of need of exceptional men and women and great men and women, but the fact that you recognize such a need probably is a strong indicator you are one of them, and that's the reason you need to start looking in your soul, looking in your heart, finding them in the depths of your country. The information that I share, sometimes it's unpleasant, sometimes it's not but I share the information that I do in hopes of promoting a better understanding of the world around us with, with of course, the recognition that this is up to you to decide whether or not you accept or reject that information. You are under no obligation to believe anything I tell you. But I believe people who are looking to find that exceptional quality of their own soul and that greatness within their own hearts will benefit from the information that I'm sharing. So with that in mind, let's move right ahead. And just for a second, I want you to just picture you are waking up from a coma. You've been out for the last 10 years. How much of our world would you still even recognize? I mean, there are some things that are familiar, but um, I I watched the Ricky uh, Gervais uh, stand-up special the other day. And I know, he's not everybody's cup of tea, but he spoke some real truth. And and I'm going to I'm going to tame this down. His was his was definitely PG-13 rated. But he says, you know, 10 years ago, no one would ever have thought to make a statement like women don't have a penis. And he says, why would we why would we not have had to make that statement? Because it was obvious to everyone. No one was trying to assert otherwise. But if you woke up from a coma today, that's one of the first things you'd be hit with. Well, how, how can that be a woman when she's still, you know, carrying male genitalia? You can't say that. That is a woman. You know, anyway, it's just one thing that it highlights is there's this incredible antagonism toward the truth. And I mean the truth of, of many things that have preceded us that actually set the foundations for Western civilization. Jeffrey Folks, writing for AmericanThinker.com, talks about the ugliest form of antagonism. And I mention this not to, you know, make you feel like a victim or to encourage you. You have to be an antagonistic person right back. But to to understand, if you're interested in being one of those exceptional people who stands up for the truth, that antagonism is going to be aimed directly at you. There is no way around it. So to better understand that antagonism and why it's for you, we're going to meet a British philosopher by the name of Roger Scruton, 
Jeffrey Folks tells us that Roger Scruton was a British philosopher who spent his life defending conservative values. Now, Sir Roger, as he was after his knighthood in uh, 2016, saw the antagonist culture as a rejection of inherited values, including gender distinctions, capitalism, patriotism, religious faith, and everyday morality, such as honesty and prohibitions against theft, adultery, and other evils. Now, Jeffrey Folks says nobody understood antagonism better on a theoretical level than Roger Scruton. And he wrote wrote with passion and clarity. In fact, for anyone who's wishing to understand the culture of antagonism, Scruton's books, including The Meaning of Conservatism, The Aesthetics of Music, and How to Be a Conservative, are a good place to start. But even Scruton did not understand the full force of antagonist culture because, in truth, he did not live to see just how destructive it could be. He didn't see rules enforced against the use of gendered pronouns and applied to children as young as three. He didn't live to see the teaching of CRT and other forms of minority supremacist ideology taking the place of actual learning in schools. He didn't see the refusal to work on the part of millions and the subsequent collapse of the supply chain. He didn't witness mobs swarming luxury stores and hauling off bags of expensive goods. Scruton had a profound understanding of the history, nature, and damaging effects of the culture of antagonism, but he didn't actually get to feel or witness its destructive nature other than the vicious bias that he himself faced as an academic. Now, of course, that uh, damage was softened somewhat by the popularity of his books and, of course, the fame and wealth that his writing brought him. He had the last laugh over those small minds in Academ uh, in that his alliance with Prince Charles in the defense of traditional architecture was one of only many contacts that opened up as a result of his principled conservatism. But Jeffrey Folk says, now we understand the effects of the culture of antagonism as Scruton couldn't have understood it. The antagonists are now in charge of the Democrat Party in America. They're controlling policy at the Biden administration. They're everywhere in the schools, colleges, and universities. They still control much of the courts and legal thinking in America, despite the enormous contribution of President Trump in supporting three Supreme, in appointing rather three Supreme Court justices and hundreds of federal judges. And in all areas, they are determined to press their fiery nihilism to its destructive end, inciting a revolutionary crisis intended to sweep away constitutional democracy and replace it with a totalitarian state. So now we see the full destructive force of antagonist culture. We begin to feel what it's like to live without freedom of speech or freedom of association and other basic rights. We now understand the effects of the destruction of gender distinctions. And we see how the teaching of CRT can divide society and turn the young against their history and traditions. We see the breakdown of law and order as gangs of young thugs pillage stores and attack helpless citizens stripped of police protection by defund the police movements. We see elderly persons on their way to church beaten and killed by those who kill for pleasure. And to all of this, the American left, infected by the culture of antagonism, is callously indifferent. Now, Scruton understood the culture of antagonism as no one had before, but he lived largely apart on a comfortable rural estate as ordinary citizens in Britain or America cannot. But for us in America and in much of the West, there is no refuge from antagonist culture. It's the mission of the Biden administration and Biden's leftist allies in Congress to force it down our throats. For the left, it's no longer acceptable to allow traditionalists to go their own way and practice their own beliefs because those beliefs are under savage attack and our faith and liberty are being stripped away. As Biden says, our children do not belong to us when they're in the classroom. 
You remember, if you own a business, Obama said, you didn't build that. And so it can and must be taxed away. Your country's not exceptional, proclaims Obama. All countries are. And so your country deserves to be taken down a notch or three. If you're white, and especially a white male heterosexual, you are inherently guilty of racism and privilege and must at all times pay obedience to make apologies and amends and reparations to those who have suffered repression. Even those repressed minorities, though, have benefited, though, from affirmative action for a half century. And if you believe in God, you must remain silent about it or be punished with loss of employment, lawsuits, or even the threat of imprisonment. And this is just the beginning. That's the bad news. Once the antagonists have gained permanent power, all of these rules will be codified into law, and these laws will be enforced everywhere. Neighbors will be enlisted to spy on neighbors, children on parents. Even the hint of conservatism on social media will be investigated, repressed, and punished and links immediately shut down, as is happening right now. So this is not an Orwellian vision of the future. This is the present in many respects. All of these policies are cheered on by the left, while the conservative majority that actually exists in America remains largely silent. And to this, Jeffrey Folk says it's time to be loud. Many commentators predict an overwhelming victory for conservatives this coming November, and he says, I hope it happens, but we must go beyond that. It's time to understand how pervasive the antagonist culture is and to oppose it at every point. We can no longer accept the dominance of radical viewpoints in media, politics, or education. He says, we are conservatives, and we will practice our beliefs in public without interference or questioning. And we will speak out against anyone who tries to curtail our liberties. I believe he's right. I also believe that there are more effective ways of doing this than just simply grabbing a bullhorn and starting to shout in every direction. I've got a link to this in the show notes. Please check it out. You'll find them at thebrianhideshow.com. And we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you are in the state of Idaho or the state of Utah, Heather and Patriot Home Mortgage are there to help you get the loan you need, whether it be a VA loan, a traditional loan, or reverse mortgage. They're there to help you get that loan quickly. And that's, you know, time is of the essence. Even though, you know, interest rates have begun to inch up, The real estate market remains incredibly hot throughout the Intermountain West. And this is where the Heather Turner team can save you time and get you the best possible rates, but you've got to contact her quickly. So please call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, go to 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I know there's been a lot of talk over the last few days about the police response to the Uvalde, Texas uh, school shootings. And, you know, and I think rightly there need to be a lot of questions asked. Now, unfortunately, it's also a jumping off point for a lot of people who just, you know, hate law enforcement with a passion. And sometimes I'm accused of that, although I, I, I try to make the distinction. Peace officers, I think, are a good thing for society because their job is to keep the peace. Law enforcement can quickly morph into authoritarianism, and sadly, that is what we have seen happen to a lot of the profession over the last 
few generations. It's it's sad, but I believe that's the case. Doesn't mean there aren't good police out there. It just means the nature of the job that they're doing is changing, as witnessed by the fact that uh, more and more cops show up on the job like they're gearing up to go into combat. So there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered regarding the police response during the Uvalde school shooting, but... I want to share with you a commentary from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org about how bureaucracy doesn't allow courage. She says the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas has shifted dramatically in the last few days from the horror of young lives being needlessly snuffed out by a gunman to the horror of why more wasn't done to save them. She says finger pointing and blaming abound, particularly toward the police who responded to the shooting. Video footage and first-hand accounts have left many wondering why officials were so slow to respond and save the teachers and children who eventually died at the hands of the shooter. Now, she says, we can rant and rave and shout coward or defund the police, as many on Twitter are doing in the face of such a tragedy, or we can also stop and consider that these people may simply be products of a bureaucratic culture in which no one can move, think, or act without following official procedure, which therefore greatly hinders the display of courage and initiative, which was once so characteristic of America. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button here for a second, but I think she's right. And I know that uh, <clears throat> for many of those uh, those law enforcement individuals who've you know, realize, oh my gosh, we were standing out there in the hall, 19 officers standing out there while the gunman was still in there killing children. They were outside the door. But I think it's the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic mindset that explains that shift from a active shooter or from an active shooter to a barricaded suspect. And that, uh, that was unfortunately a very deadly mistake. Back to Annie's article, she says, Courage, Aristotle told us in Nicomachean Ethics, chooses action or endures pain because this is the noble course or because the opposite course is disgraceful. And as stories continue to emerge about what went on in the Uvalde shooting attack, there seems to be a recurring theme regarding courage. Thus far, the ones who showed true courage seem to be those who weren't acting in an official capacity. The parents and those officials who were off duty but came to the crime scene anyway. For instance, Jacob Alvarado is one of those officials. Alvarado, a U.S. Customs and Border Protection agent, was sitting in a barber chair when he heard about the shooting. Now, the New York Post reports this. He didn't allow his off-duty status to let him off the hook. He raced to the school and began evacuating children. Another Border Protection agent, the one who eventually stopped shooter Salvador Ramos, was also off-duty. Now, the parents, many parents, rather, also courageously attempted to get into the school and save their children, regardless of the risk to their own lives. But unfortunately, those who did so were detained by police, one mother ending up in handcuffs, one father pepper sprayed and tackled by police as he headed for the school. And Annie Holmquist asks, where was the courage of those officially trained to respond to the situation? The ones equipped with bulletproof vests and guns of their own. In pondering this question, she says it's helpful to consider what our society has become. Today, when any crisis occurs, be it a shooting or even something as simple as a debate in a college classroom, there's constant criticism of how the individuals involved acted. If they didn't act on something, they're blamed, as in this case. If they did act, they're also blamed for the fact that they used a gun or they didn't treat a minority with sensitivity or used the wrong pronouns or some other inane reason that's so common these days. Thus, we get a situation where people are paralyzed in a crisis because they know that in some way, the powers that be will crush them regardless of whether they show courage 
or not. Hannah Arendt described the situation well, both with regard to violence and our response to it, when she wrote that the greater the bureaucratization of public life, the greater will be the attraction of violence. The problem, she explained, was that in a fully developed bureaucracy, there is nobody left with whom one can argue, to whom one can, ex- can present grievances, on whom the pressures of power can be exerted. And Arendt goes on to write, Bureaucracy is the form of government in which everybody is deprived of political freedom, of the power to act, for the rule by nobody is not no rule. And where all are equally powerless, we have a tyranny without a tyrant. End quote. By the way, that perfectly describes a lot of the COVID response, too. Why are we doing this? Why are we locking down businesses and destroying people's livelihoods? Well, it's because somebody, some of the, the declaration has been made. Look at that passive voice. A declaration has been made. Yeah, by whom? Under what authority? Nobody wants to be the one to stand there and take responsibility for it, especially now. Annie Holmquist says, hence, we see the situation where frantic parents couldn't get the police to go into the school or even let the parents themselves go in. The police were stoic, likely trying to follow official procedure. Why should they risk their lives in courageous acts or let parents do the same when to do so would risk their necks by crossing official bureaucratic procedure, no matter which way they turned? And thus, everyone in this situation was sorely hindered in their freedom and power to act. Now, she says, we have a legitimate reason to bemoan the failures and apparent cowardice of those who are supposed to protect us. But when we do, we should realize that a greater force is at work. When we have a bureaucratic government that watches every step and plans every move of its officials, then we can kiss courage and initiative and all the characteristics that we admired during a crisis one big, long goodbye. I know that feels pretty stark, and those words kind of smacked me hard when I first read them. But I think she's right. And the cure for this, I, you know, what, what can I say? What is the cure here? Well, we've got to vote smarter. Okay, that might work, but, you know, the bureaucracy seems to remain entrenched regardless of who wins a particular election. Have you noticed this? It doesn't matter if the Republicans are in control or if the Democrats are in control. The bureaucracy is still there. It's still growing. So I'm thinking perhaps our solution lies in a slightly different approach. And that is we take more responsibility in our own lives. Now, for some people, it's, well, what are you saying, Brian? We need to be the ones to go in there and rescue our kids. Um, It could take that form, possibly. It's happened before. But I'm thinking about to maybe even take a couple steps back from that and say, if you have the option of not sending your kids to a school, where once they enter those premises, they are subjected to lockdowns and, you know, prison-like, you know, atmosphere. <clears throat> maybe, maybe the better alternative is to keep your kids someplace where you can educate them yourselves. And yes, I believe that a part of your responsibility as a parent is being capable of protecting those who are dearest to you. I'm not a person who advocates for, for violence and thinks that, yeah, that's, you know, that's the first resort that we should turn to at the same time. I believe that uh, God Almighty actually places on us the responsibility that there are some things which we should be willing to defend, even to bloodshed. And I think our families, particularly our children, are one of those things. So yes, I believe parents should have skillet arms. I think they should have uh, you know, the interest of their children in terms of their education, first and foremost in their lives. And I think the school bureaucracy, until it's dialed back somehow, 
should cause us to take our business elsewhere wherever possible. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to recognize HSL Ammo as one of my great sponsors. You can go to their website at hslammo.com. I'm not promising you're going to find anything magical there, just high-quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. But here's one added benefit. If you are one of my listeners in southern Utah, this is made right in your neck of the woods. This is made in St. George, Utah. My friend Spencer Worthington is the founder and president of HSL Ammo and uh, just an all-around great guy. And there's a lot to be said for ammo, both as a store of value as well as a means of turning money into skill. And this is one of those skills I think that uh, people would be wise to have. Skill at arms, knowing how to defend yourself and what's important to you, as well as just having fun. You want to talk about a bonding time with your kids? Go spend some time at the range. I promise that is memory-making at its best. When you do, think about HSLAmmo.com. Maybe consider purchasing from them. Well, if you've grown weary of uh, the fits of rhetorical incontinence that seem to follow every highly publicized shooting spree, here's a commentary you need to hear. This is from the Good Citizen Substack, laying out the uh, shoot-first-think-never approach that's always off-target. All the, the verbal aftermath that, uh, that we seem to encounter. And, and before I dive into this, can I just first note, these shootings are a tragedy, but they're also very much an aberration. And statistically, your kid is still safer at school than walking down the street. You know, the chance of being hit by a car in a pedestrian auto accident is still greater than being snuffed out by some, you know, crazy shooter at school. So let's try to keep things in perspective. The Good Citizen says, let's take a moment to pause and reflect on the real victims of school shootings. Law enforcement. The inconvenience of having nearly half a city's budget provide for everything a law enforcement department needs to handle any situation only to be asked to actually have to do something when the worst possible situation arises that they've spent hours training and preparing for, oh, that must be a real nuisance. Now, historically, well-functioning societies always expected their firemen to run into burning buildings, their servicemen to be deployed to occupy far-off distant lands that cover the earth while ignoring hordes of invaders coming across their own borders, and law enforcement to cordon off areas rather with yellow tape to crowd-control hysterical parents while they listen to their children being slaughtered in their classrooms. If the yellow tape doesn't work, then we expect those officers to really jump into action and tase, tackle, or subdue any histrionic parents who decide to take action against mass shooters without all the neat toys that they financially help supply to the officers subduing them. I'm sensing there's there's some anger here, but please, listen, There's there's... There's a reason I want to share this. The Good Citizen says, as with most cultural divisive issues, or culturally divisive issues, there's almost never any logical deductive reasoning or rational objective thinking applied to the issue. Most people are either reactive emotional responders or tribal ideological adherers, and neither requires thinking at all. And this applies to all sides of the issue, though some people are more likely to have facts and statistics on their side, and it's rarely the reactive emotional responders. So here are a few of the common emotional responses blurted out on cue to the immediate, in the immediate aftermath of school shootings, followed by some data to support or refute those claims. 
Violent video games are responsible for the rise in mass shootings and school shootings. Now, this is actually an argument made by even some conservatives, including commentator Michael Savage and even former President Trump in the aftermath of the mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio in the same week that killed 30. Now, this is not a rational or true argument that those concerned with protecting the Second Amendment and fighting against increased gun control laws should make, if only because it's not accurate. And there are far better arguments with data to support them. In fact, here's a link to a headline here that says violent video game engagement is not associated with adolescents' aggressive behavior. Evidence from a registered report. Basically, by keeping young males busy with things they like, and this would include everything from playing sports and collecting stamps to playing first-person shooter video games, you keep them off the streets and out of trouble. That's Christopher Ferguson, associate professor and co-chairman of the Department of Psychology at Stetson University. Also the author of Mortal Kombat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. Now he adds, newer studies with better methods have typically failed to find much evidence of a connection between brutal games and even minor aggressive acts, let alone violence. He says the tide has turned against linking video games to violence. There's more skepticism these days. A group of 238 scholars asked the American Psychological Association to retire its outdated and problematic statements on video game violence. Okay, here's another assertion. Ban weapons of war or assault weapons. Now, the 1994 assault weapons ban, which was called the uh, Orwellian Public Safety and Recreational Firearms Use Protection Act, passed by Congress that was in effect for over a decade, had no meaningful impact on homicide rates by firearms or mass shootings. Those who commit homicide with firearms or know anything at all about firearms know killing is far easier with a handgun, particularly in close quarters. Than with an assault rifle. In fact, the phrase assault rifle, like her latest cousin, weapons of war, is a marketing term created by public relations focus groups designed to scare people into supporting their ban. Most are simple semi-automatic rifles of no greater caliber than <clears throat> old-school bolt-action hunting rifles. That they have what are called high-capacity magazines is another debate entirely, though not necessary as there are handguns like the popular Glock 17 that support 100-round drum magazines and can be made to fire full auto. With two guns holding 9mm 30-round magazines, one in each hand, a school shooter could do as much or more damage than with any single assault rifle holding a 30-round magazine. Some interesting graphics here, too, as well, showing the number of mass shootings in the U.S. between 1982 and February 2020 and the types of weapons used. Between 1980 in mass shootings between 1982 and February 2020. If you think, well, it's got to be rifles right up there on top. No, no, handguns, the winner by far. And rifles are, they're a distant second, but uh, close to shotguns in terms of, uh, of the number of times that they're used. So the ban on so-called assault weapons wasn't really needed, as prior to 1994, there really weren't many mass shootings or school shootings. Columbine happened in 1999, which many consider the first major school shooting, where the event became both a political tool and a source of mass media hysteria that almost exploited the tragedies for ratings while giving the criminals as much celebratory publicity as possible. Here's another statement you'll hear. It's time to repeal the Second Amendment. Now, crime had already been falling considerably since peaking in the 1970s and early 80s. Interestingly, the last period that the nation experienced economic stagnation, inflation, and high energy prices. Violent crime has been rising again for the first time in 30 years under similar conditions. 
although it's less likely due to economic factors and more likely attributable to the intentional anarcho-tyranny of Democrat lawmakers and their funders like George Soros, who install hapless puppets that refuse to enforce any laws or prosecute violent criminals, releasing millions of them on the street to re-re-re-re-offend. <laughs> See Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and San Francisco for obvious examples, though there are a dozen other cities following this intentional madness. Now, the fact that there are, almost all, there are already almost 400 million firearms in ownership or in circulation throughout the U.S., means that repealing the Second Amendment would require a massive gun grab by the federal government, with help required from state and local governments to execute, no pun intended. The more lawmakers even threaten such actions, the more guns are sold in a particular year, with over 20 million now sold annually. That's 20 million more that would need to be seized than the year prior, from cold, dead hands that will not comply. The logistics of such an undertaking are not only impractical, but would likely lead to something approximating a second civil war. The only hope gun grabbers have is, have is to amplify mass shooting events and pump out the propaganda around guns, the fantasy of effective gun control laws, and emotionally manipulate the masses into an Australia-like event where the masses voluntarily turn over their guns to the government. Now here's the kicker. There's absolutely no correlation between gun ownership, the number of firearms in circulation, and higher murder rates. In fact, actually the inverse is true. The best defense against a criminal with a gun is not 911 and waiting five minutes while crossing your fingers that the responding law enforcement officers are brave and competent. The best defense is being armed to counter the violent threat. Those who support a nationwide gun grab cannot wrap their minds around this fact. Despite having been sufficiently conditioned to, or they've been conditioned to believe that firearms in and of themselves are somehow deadly. This is part of the ideological mind virus that denies human agency. The firearm does the killing, not the human who illegally acquires it, holds it, points it, and pulls the trigger with the intent of, of killing another person. Let me skip ahead here, just kind of cut to the chase. There's a lot to this article, but I'm going to get the, to the point here. The root causes in mass or school shootings are more likely to be found outside firearms data and statistics. If it isn't violent video games or violent movies or popular culture, toxic and deprived as it, or depraved as it is, and if gun control measures don't work, nor would a Second Amendment repeal, and assault weapons or total gun ownership is not really the problem, then what's really going on here? Well, part two is forthcoming, in which they'll examine the more likely candidates to consider that often get ignored in the wake of mass shootings and the resulting inevitable parade of screaming political opportunists flooding the public sphere with torrents of irrational verbal dysentery. Check out the link I provide in my show notes. Again, this is from the Good Citizen Substack. Definitely worth your time to check out this article. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Lifesavingfood.com is one of my sponsors here. And I would encourage you to just click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and just see for yourself. Okay, They have different specials from time to time. They still have a lot of products and different things in store. Not just food storage, but emergency preparedness supplies, ways to purify your water, ways to cook with solar power, Things that would come in handy in, you know, even not so much end-of-the-world scenarios. 
lifesavingfood.com. It'd mean a lot to me if you would check them out, and even more if you would consider doing business with them. So I've been at this for a while. I've been behind the microphone for, man, coming up on, seriously, coming up on 38 years come December. Dang. I know. I'm still trying to decide if this is for me or not, but uh, it's, it's looking like it might work out. Something that has amazed me over that time as my own understanding and awareness has grown is how strange it is how offended people become whenever someone questions the official narrative. Now, I'm not talking about delving into, you know, deep, dark conspiracy theories and jumping down every rabbit hole you happen to walk by. I'm talking about when someone points out, hey, what the narrative managers are trying to do to, to sway our thinking and they've been wrong, or they've lied to us directly. Even when you can show someone, people get offended. And they don't stop to think, well, is there a reason they would want to control what we think? I've got an article here from Caitlin Johnstone. Ten times empire managers showed us that they want to control our thoughts. And I don't know if this will convince anybody or not, but it's some really good intellectual ammunition if you're trying to help people who are starting to open their eyes realize hey it's not your imagination caitlin johnstone says the single most overlooked and underappreciated aspect of our society is the fact that immensely powerful people are continuously working to manipulate the thoughts we think about the world now whether you call it propaganda or psyops or perception management or just public relations it's a real thing that happens constantly and it happens to all of us and its consequences shape our entire world. Now, her point is that this should be at the forefront of our attention anytime we're examining news or trends or ideas, but instead it hardly ever gets mentioned. And this is because the mass-scale psychological manipulation is succeeding. See, propaganda only works if you don't know it's happening. Now, she says, to be clear, I'm not talking about some kind of wacky, unsubstantiated conspiracy theory here. I'm talking about a conspiracy fact that we are propagandized by people with authority over us is not seriously in dispute by any well-informed good-faith actor and has been extensively described and documented for years. More than this, though, she says, the managers of US centralized, the U.S. centralized empire, which dominates the West and so much of the rest of the world, have straightforwardly shown us that they propagandize us and want to propagandize us more. They've shown with their actions, they've at times come right out and told us with their words. So here are just a few of those times. Number one, Operation Mockingbird. Let's start with the best-known example, she says. In 1977, Carl Bernstein published an article titled The CIA and the Media, reporting that the CIA had covertly infiltrated America's most influential news outlets and had over 400 reporters who had considered assets in a program known as Operation Mockingbird. Now, it was a major scandal, and rightly so. The news media are meant to report truthfully about what happens in the public, not manipulate, or what happens in the world, rather, and not manipulate public perception to suit the agendas of spooks and warmongers. But it only got worse from there. Point number two, intelligence operatives are now just openly working in the media. Nowadays, the CIA collaboration happens right out in the open, and people are too propagandized to even recognize this as scandalous. Immensely inf- influential news outlets like the New York Times uncritically pass on CIA disinfo, which is then spun as fact by cable news pundits. 
The Washington Post has consistently refused to disclose the fact that its sole owner has been a CIA contractor when reporting on U.S. intelligence agencies as per standard journalistic protocol. Mass media outlets now openly employ intelligence agency veterans like John Brennan, James Clapper, Chuck Rosenberg, Michael Hayden, Frank Figliuzzi, Fran Towson, and the list goes on and on. She's probably got two dozen names here. You also have Mike Rogers, Malcolm Nance, as known CIA assets like NBC's Ken Delanian, Delanian rather, CIA interns like Anderson Cooper, and CIA applicants like Tucker Carlson. Operation Mockingbird was the CIA doing something to the media. What we're now seeing is the CIA openly acting as the media. Any meaningful separation between the CIA and the news media, indeed any pretense of separation, has been dropped. Number three, you have Richard Stengel's Council on Foreign Relation remarks on propaganda. He directly states he supports the use of propaganda on American citizens and then shuts the session down. This is at a a Council on Foreign, Foreign Relations forum about fake news. He shut down the forum when he was challenged about how propaganda is used against the third world. Very interesting video if you want to click on it and watch. What Stengel said was basically every country creates their own narrative story. My old job at the State Department was what people used to joke as the uh, chief propagandist. I'm not against propaganda. Every country does it, and they've done it to their own population. I don't necessarily think it that awful. You want to hear it from his own lips. You have that option. Point number four, U.S. officials telling the press that they're circulating disinfo about Russia to win an information war against Putin. And again, you can hear this again directly from the actors themselves. Caitlin Johnstone you know, has a, uh, an article that she's written on this where U.S. officials have admitted they're literally just lying to the public about you know, how invincible Ukraine's forces are and how you know, incompetent Russia's forces are. It's not an accurate reflection of the situation. And it's not because she's a Russian propagandist. It's because there's a narrative that they want to uphold. In fact, she says last month, NBC News released a report citing multiple anonymous U.S. officials who said the Biden administration has been rapidly pushing out, in quotation marks, intelligence about Russia's plans in Ukraine that is low confidence or based more on analysis than hard evidence, or even just plain false, in order to fight an information war against Putin. So they lied. Now, they may hold that they lied for a noble reason, They knowingly circulated uh, information they had no reason to believe was true, and then that lie was amplified by all the most influential media outlets in the Western world. And this all happened while the mass media is continually churning out reports that the public is in danger of misinformation. Kind of ironic, don't you think? Point number five, how about senators telling Silicon Valley representatives that it's their job to manipulate public thought to prevent dissent? I think the exact words they used were to quell information rebellions so as to prevent the fomenting of discord. I mean, back in 2017, representatives from Google, Facebook, and Twitter all were called before the Senate Judiciary Committee and told to quell those information rebellions and instructed to come up with a mission statement expressing their commitment to preventing the fomenting of discord on their their platforms. You have to be the one to do it or do something about it, or we will. That's what Dianne Feinstein told these platforms. Point number six, the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. Now, you know this one is on hold for now. It's not completely done away with, but 
it was ridiculed back into the shadows, at least for the moment. Don't be surprised when it's dusted off and brought out at a little more opportune time, again, to protect us from things that would cause us to question the narrative. Point number seven, the Smith-Mutt Modernization Act of 2012. Congressmen seek to lift propaganda ban. How about this? Point number eight, this is going to hit some people pretty hard. Reagan's psychological operations. And it's an interesting story about how three decades ago, the U.S. began an operation to flood the world with psyops. Point number nine is Canadian military leaders using COVID regulations as an opportunity to test out psyop techniques on civilians. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, Canada actually is uh, proposing and uh, Trudeau is looking to pass a complete freeze on handguns. No more purchasing, no more transferring, no more buying. He wants to strictly regulate ammo. I mean, we've already seen how badly he's willing to abuse his own citizens. Now he's eager to make sure that they really have absolutely no way to resist any further tyranny at his hands that he may have planned for them. And point number 10, the U.S. government funding so-called independent media in Ukraine. White House fact sheet says part of its mammoth $33 billion spending package it's requesting for Ukraine will be to support independent media because nothing screams independent like being directly funded by the U.S. government as part of its information warfare initiative. Now, again, the links are here. The documentation is here. If you want to check this out for yourself and see, is Caitlin Johnstone just pulling my leg? Is she just making this up? I mean, if you're hoping that's the case, maybe you don't want to look at this information because it will definitely... It will definitely show you there's uh, there's some facts that are going to remain whether you want them to be there or not. But it raises the question, too, what are you and I to do about this? I would say, first and foremost, this underlines, underscores the necessity of being able to think as clearly and independently as possible at all times. If it's coming to you from an official source, question it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.